0: We are continuing a series really at the beginning of the book of Philippians, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in the Roman colony of Philippi. Last week, we uh, in Acts 16, we saw the background of this church, how it was started. But this morning, we will begin our journey in the actual letter that Paul wrote. And we'll begin in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, verses 1 and 2 may not sound like much, uh, but there is a lot to ponder in these opening verses. And So let's read together. This is God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, In peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you make my words and the meditation of our hearts pleasing and acceptable to you this morning. Would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would behold you. Would you do a work in our hearts as you did thousands of years ago in the heart of Lydia when you opened and planted the church in Philippi? Would you open our hearts as we hear your word proclaimed? Enlarge our hearts so that we would not simply consume information, but we would be encountered by you, Jesus. That you would challenge us, that you would comfort us, and that we would leave this place worshiping you, that our hearts would be singing of you because of your word. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Over the years, my wife Josie and I have supported missionaries, not just to the world, but missionaries to North America as well. And if you support missionaries, you know that part of the deal is a monthly support letter. Which includes family updates, ministry updates, prayer requests. And if you've ever uh, supported a missionary or a church planter, you know that this is something that you look forward to. If you have never supported a missionary or a church planter, let me convince you to do so with at least this reason. You get basically a subscription to an amazing letter ministry. As my mother-in-law likes to put it, when you support missionaries, it's like you're writing on their coattails. You, you say to yourself, I, I'm a part of this? Well, I share this because the book of Philippians, if you can believe it, is a missionary support letter. Paul planted a church in Philippi in Lydia's house on his second missionary trip. And then 10 years later, Paul is in a Roman prison awaiting trial and possibly death. The Philippian church learns about this. It shakes them up. You can see this in verse 13 of chapter 1. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So it's, the church is aware that the church planter, the founding pastor of their church is in prison in Rome. They kind of freak out. So they send a guy named Epaphroditus, a member of their church to seek Paul out and to support him, to give him financial and emotional and spiritual support. Epaphroditus. A name that does not work with spell check, by the way. <laughs> so Paul, upon receiving this support, wants to thank them. Chapter 4, verse 18. If you turn the page, you'll hear Paul write, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so, this is nothing less than an ancient, divinely inspired support letter. But Paul uses a support letter as an opportunity to encourage the house church. Over the years, my favorite support letters go beyond the bare bones updates. I can think of one in particular where you read it because you knew that you were going to get this amazing sermon. This is how the Lord is working in our ministry. And, and then it turns imperceptibly from a support letter to something supporting you. And you're like... Wait, who's supporting who right now? And that's Paul. Paul, as a missionary, as a church planter, he wants to let them know that he's doing okay. But in doing so, he wants to support and encourage his supporters. The divinely inspired support letter. And that's why the first two verses that we heard read aloud look like mail. Have you ever noticed that? The New Testament is a collection of mail. We are reading other people's mail when we are reading most of the New Testament books. And it would be tempting, and it was tempting for me to just move on from the introduction, verses 1 and 2, and, and to, the, to the good stuff, to the doctrine, to the things that matter, right? But there's so much depth in these two verses, because introductions are telling. How you introduce yourself says so much about your identity. And how you um, address others says so much about how you view others. In these two verses, we see how Paul views himself and how he views the church. And I think this is so valuable, which is why we're spending some time on it this morning. It answers two questions How should we view leadership in the church? And number two, how should we view discipleship in the church? So first, taking on leadership, how does Paul understand himself as an apostle and Timothy, Paul and Timothy, verse one, as a church leader and overseers and deacons, elders and deacons in this church that he's writing to? What is the vision that God has for church leadership that the apostle Paul takes for granted, as it were, in his greeting? In about a half hour, members will be voting on elders and deacons. And so this is a timely question. And so let's take another look at how Paul opens his letter. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. I see three important realities about leadership in general, but particularly leadership in the church. And the first is this leadership in the church is servant hearted. Paul uses a very striking word to describe his apostleship, his leadership, his role in the church. He uses the word doulos, or servant, or more striking, slave. And this word is used in chapter 2, verse 7, to describe how Jesus led the church. Take a look. Chapter 2, verse 7. If you back up to verse 5, you'll get the context. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or a thing to be leveraged for his benefit. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a doulos, taking on the form of a servant. So our pastor, Jesus, is a servant leader. He used his authority. He is the Lord. Caesar is not. And he used his lordship to become a slave. Leadership in the church is servant-hearted. Leadership in the church also is submissive to Jesus. Paul and Timothy are not just servants, but what? Servants of Christ Jesus. The biblical scholar J. Motyer, he reminds us that the slave bought at a price in this ancient context is completely at the disposal of the purchaser to do his bidding. So it's no small thing that Paul and Timothy are introducing their letter as leaders of the church, as somebody who is completely at the disposal of their purchaser, Jesus Christ. That's their understanding. We are slaves to Christ. And so Paul and, and Timothy understand their leadership as in complete submission to Jesus to do his bidding. And that is why I think he has this interesting preposition use when he says with the overseers and deacons in the second half of verse one. Instead of under the overseers and deacons, he says, and to you, the church and Philippi with your officers Not under, with your officers. Because leaders in the church, just like members in the church, are submissive to King Jesus. We're all slaves to Jesus. And so leadership in the church is submissive to Jesus. Leadership in the church is servant-hearted. And finally, I see in this text that leadership in the church is to be understood as shepherding. Shepherding. Paul uses the term overseers. I don't know if you noticed that in the second half of verse 1, that he uses the word overseers and not the word elder. What we find as we study this word, and as we study the word elder in the New Testament, we see that these words are used interchangeably. I'll give you one example. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 17, if you want to follow along, you can, or I'll just read it aloud. Uh, Verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Paul did. And when the elders of the church came to him, He said to them, and now we're skipping the verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's charging the elders. Elders, listen up. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. With his own blood. Why does Paul call the elders in Ephesus overseers? Why does Paul call the elders in Philippi overseers? Well, Peter, who knew Jesus well, and more importantly knew Jesus' grace well, says this, in 1 Peter 2:25, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the way Jesus shepherds the church is the way he has appointed leaders in the church to shepherd. I'm reading a first hand account right now of a modern day shepherd in northern England. It's called A Shepherd's Life. Have you heard of this book? A Shepherd's Life. He lives in the Lake District of England and he's been shepherding. He and his family have been shepherding for generations. I'm at the very beginning of the book, but this quote is telling, he says to work in the mountains is a humbling thing. The opposite of conquering a mountain. If you like. And he talks a lot in the beginning about how people come to the Lake District to simply conquer. They come to the Lake District to encounter beauty. And he's been there his whole life. He knows no different. And he says, when I'm shepherding in the mountains, I'm not conquering anything. He goes, when I'm shepherding in the mountains, he goes on, he says, it liberates you from any illusion of self-importance. It reminds me of Henry Nowen and in his definition of leadership, Henry Nowen was a man who resigned from his Harvard fame to work with handicapped adults. He says the way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility, in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility, ending in the cross. This is a change. This is. This is a charge for all of you who are up for church leadership. But it is also a charge for all of you who have any kind of influence, which is all of us, by the way. How do you use your influence? How do you use your authority? What we see here and what we see throughout all of the pages of the Bible is that leadership in God's economy is downward mobility, not upward mobility. Leadership in God's economy is taking on a cross. Leadership in God's economy is wearing a towel over your shoulder at all times so that you are ready to wash dirty, bloody, calloused feet. Leadership in God's economy is... Taking on a cross is to be a servant to Jesus and a servant to others. That's leadership. It looks like a cross, not a crown. It's sitting on the floor, not a corporate chair. Leadership. What do we learn about discipleship, though, in the church? Because we also catch a vision in this text. Not only what Paul and Timothy uh, understood implicitly uh, about leadership, but we also see what he says about the the people who are in the church. Not just Timothy and the elders and the overseers and the deacons. When Paul addresses the Philippian church, there is a sense in which God is addressing you. And so I want you to listen. Listen. How does God address you in this letter? Well, the Philippians' main identity is not where they live. They are only at Philippi. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So their main identity is not where they live. Because that can change. They could be exiled. They could become refugees. The Philippians' main identity is not even Christian... The word Christian, that word is only used three times in the New Testament. Their main identity is saint in Christ. All of them, not just the ones who have done three miracles. All of them are saints in Christ. Which is how believers were addressed back then. Saints. Sixty times in the New Testament. Saints, when we think saint, we think perfect Christian. But in the Bible, every sinner who trusts in Jesus is a saint. Not because they're perfect, but because they are united to a perfect Christ. They are saints in Christ. Saints in Christ. Those are the three most precious words in our text this morning. Saints In Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, he says, if we are united to Christ, then we are united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. And we're going to see this play out in the letter to the Philippians. This phrase in Christ is a favorite of Paul's. He relishes in this. It's so central to the good news. When he says grace and peace from, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because we are in Christ that we have grace and therefore peace. He says, he says, if we are united to Christ, then we are united to Him at all points of His activity on our behalf. We share in His death. We were baptized into his death, to use Paul's language. We share in his death so that you can say truthfully that when Jesus died and absorbed the wrath of sin, there is a true sense in which you also died on that day on that cross so that you can no longer be condemned for your sin. Because you have been united to his death. Do you remember the the assurance of grace this morning? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. How can there be no condemnation? Because you are in Christ and you have died already. Your sin has been nailed to a tree once and for all. So you've been united to his death. But that's, that's not it. There's more. We share in his death, but we also share in his resurrection, he goes on. We are resurrected with Christ. That means death does not have the final word. If anybody has done a funeral in the past year, been at a funeral in the past year, you need to know that death does not have the final word. You are in Christ, and therefore you are united to His resurrection. As surely as He has risen from the dead, you will one day too. More than that, we are united in his ascension. We have been raised with him. In his heavenly session, we sit with him in the heavenly places so that our life is hidden in Christ. And we share in his promised return. When Christ, who is our life, appears, this is Paul's language, we also will appear with him in glory. Do you see how we are united to every aspect of his activity on our behalf? Amazing. And that's why you're a saint. You're set apart. In God's economy, there are two types of people there are those in Christ and those outside of Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. Okay, You are a saint. You are kept by God. 500 years ago, on the 31st of October, which is just a couple days away, an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 debate topics on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, this was a normal thing to do, by the way, nailing the debate topics on the, on the door of a church. It was like the ancient medieval equivalent of Facebook at the time. This is, this is what you did. This is how you learned about things going on in the community. This is, how, this is how monks debated. This is how they talked about things. They would nail things. It was the bulletin board. What this Facebook post did, though, is it sparked a reformation in the church. And there are ugly things about that reformation and there are beautiful things about that reformation. And one of the most beautiful things about that reformation is that the church tried to align their worship and their life to the word of God. And in doing so, they recovered things that have been lost. And one of Luther's most important observations, in my opinion, was that the gospel means that we are simultaneously declared just in God's sight while we are also sinners in need of grace. (laughs) that we have a simultaneous identity, as it were, where we are saints in Christ, and yet always in need of grace. Always. In fact, the more you settle into your identity in Christ, the more aware and the more willing you are to be honest about your need for grace. And it's that simultaneous identity that He understood so well. We are positionally set apart. And yet we are never, ever without need of God's continual grace in our life. We're saints. What I want to encourage us to do here to close is to rest in your identity in Christ. Uh, I want you to not rest in any other identity than the one that the Lord addresses you as this morning in this letter. You're not fundamentally your job. You're not fundamentally your vocation, your mothering, your fathering, your singlehood, your hobbies. You're not even fundamentally the country you grew up in and the people group you are a part of. You're fundamentally in Christ. This means racism is heresy. This means nationalism is heresy. Because we are one in Christ. We are in Christ. There are people in this church. There were uh, divisiveness in this church. There are Greeks and Romans, Jews and non-Jews, and Paul is saying grace and peace. When he says peace, he's not just saying I feel peaceful. This feel—I mean, I think it includes that. But the vision of peace in the scriptures, especially the vision of peace that Paul's tapping into, is not just an internal sense of well-being. It is rightness with God. It is rightness. With others. It is a flourishing interdependence. Not just with others. But even the created world. Grace and then peace. Or shalom. And that's, that's our identity. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. May you live like it. May you live on a daily basis. Like you are united to King Jesus. The resurrected Lord. Rankin Wilborn says, when you wake up and anxiety floods your heart, instead of saying, how am I going to handle this today? Or what do I have to do today? He says, I think union with Christ means that you start to say, Jesus, what do we have today? What do we have today? And I have to admit, when I'm walking into a day where there are things about which I'm anxious Changing the pronoun changes everything. I'm not going into the day. I'm united to Jesus. We're going into the day. Because you are a saint. Don't obey God in order to get something you already have. Obey God because you already declared saint. Ask God instead, what part do I have to play in your mission today? Stop trying to earn something that you've already been given. And so may we be a church that stands in Christ. That claims Christ. That rests only in Christ. That is not swayed by other things because we're placing identity in them. And would we, as leaders, would we embrace the gift of downward mobility because we're in Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for these two verses, this introduction of a letter. It shows so much. It's a telling introduction into who we are, deepest identity. We are saints in Christ. Help all of us, including our leaders, especially our leaders, live like it. What a privilege. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.